Good morning, church. Go ahead and grab a Bible. I want you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew uh, chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. And uh, in just a minute, we're going to read the scripture. And, and, um, and as you're kind of turning there, I want to talk to you about Christmas Eve. We've got two Christmas Eve services, 3.30 and 5 o'clock uh, in the afternoon on Christmas Eve. And I, wanna, I want you to be thinking about who you can invite to that. I know many of you go out of town because you're going to connect with family that are out of town. But those of you that will be back here. Um, staying, staying in the area, I want to encourage you to be thinking about a coworker, a family member, uh, a friend, um, somebody in your neighborhood, and invite them to church. Now, this is one of two seasons out of the year where uh, people are very interested in coming to church. They're very curious about it. Uh, many people have grown up going to church and, uh, in the Christmas season and through the adult years, uh, they get away from that, and there's a longing for them to, to want to connect, but they just they just don't know where or how to connect. And that's where you come in. And uh, so I want to encourage you to do that. Um, statistics show, I, I can kind of, you know, give these to you all day long. But um, in our minds, we think people really don't want to go to church. But in reality, the statistics tell us uh, probably 80% of people that you invite would say, yeah, I would love to come. Especially if you say, hey, I'll meet you at the front door. Um, and that just makes it feel really safe for them to come. Does that make sense? So I want to encourage you to do that. Everybody get it? Good, good. Okay, on the next step counter out in the foyer, you can pick up an invite card uh, for, for those services, and we would uh, love to have you give that to someone. All right, so what we're going to do today is we are going to start a new series. It's going to be a short series, but we're going to call it uh, The Wonder of Christmas. And we're just going to really ask God to uh, help us rediscover the wonder of the Christmas season and what Christmas is all about. And I want to just kind of talk to you about uh, the wonder of God's grace today. So we're going to read a, a short passage of scripture from Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read the first 12 verses. And I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, would you stand just out of reverence for the reading of God's holy word today. So Matthew writes this. He says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king... Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word for God's people. You may be seated. Have you ever taken some time just to think about how small and insignificant we really are? Have you considered that? If you need a refresher, I, I would encourage you just to go outside on a clear night and just look up into the stars for just a few minutes uh, and you'll really start to get a sense of how small and insignificant and irrelevant we really are. Um, you know, when you kind of think about the fact that, you know, when you think about how small the planet Earth is compared to other planets, when you begin to consider how small the sun is compared to other stars, when, when, you, when you consider just how small the galaxy is that we're in compared to the universe, you really start to, you really start to get a sense of just how small we really are as human beings. All you have to do is look through a Hubble telescope or, um, you know, look at quantum mechanics or astrophysics, which I know nothing about, uh, parenthetically, um, you would begin, if you consider those things, you would begin to get a picture of just how infinitely complex and infinitely in scope is the universe, the cosmos uh, in which we live. Let's just consider it just for a minute. Have you ever thought about how large the universe is? Would you like to get on a spaceship and journey to the edge of the known universe? Would you like to do that? Because if you would, you better buckle your seatbelt. Because if you get on that spaceship and you're going to travel to the edge of the known universe, you're going to need to go the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second. That's hole and boogie right there. Not only that, but you're going to have to travel 6 trillion miles per year. And let me just give you a word of caution here. Even though you're traveling at warp speed, you're going to have, it's going to take you 46 billion years to get to what we think is the known edge of the universe. Now, buyer beware, before you purchase your ticket, you need to understand what you're getting yourself into. Because the problem is, scientists believe that the universe is continually expanding. So by the time you get to the known edge of the universe, you're probably going to have to go another 46 billion years to get to the next known end of the universe. And then the next one, and then the next one. You guys catch my drift on that? So in other words, scientists believe that it's statistically impossible for you and I to travel to the known end of the universe. We just can't do it. That's how vast the universe really is. Are you feeling small yet? You should be. Let's just consider, let's just consider the planetary system that, we're current, that we currently find ourselves in. I just want you to think about this. Now, Scientists believe that in the cosmos, there are 10 trillion planetary systems. We're just part of one. 10 trillion and we're in one. We're part of a little known Milky Way galaxy where scientists believe that there are 200 billion galaxies throughout the cosmos. You feeling small yet? You should be. How about this? When you think about just how 
small the earth is. You know, you could take 1.3 million earths and fit them neatly inside the sun. 1.3 million inside the sun fits perfect. That's how small we really are. What's fascinating, though, is the sun yet is dwarfed by many stars, many times bigger than the sun. And so no wonder the poet Walt Whitman said, every inch of space is an absolute miracle. It's an absolute miracle. You feeling small yet? You should be. You know, it's interesting. Scientists really don't talk about a universe anymore. They're talking about a multiverse. That's kind of the new terminology that they're using. Just because it's so vast, it's so large. You know, there's a shepherd boy about 3,000 years ago that never had access to the Hubble telescope. He never took a class in astrophysics. Um, But boy, he had wisdom. Because because of what he wrote, we can see his wisdom in Psalm 19.1. This shepherd boy David says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You see, he didn't have access to all the scientific knowledge that you and I have today, but he had wisdom and insight to know our God is an awesome God. And he didn't know that there were probably 200, you know, million galaxies, uh, but he understood that God is infinitely bigger than all of those galaxies put together combined. He understood that. And I guess the question really is, why would God create such a vast universe? Have you ever thought about that? Like, why would God do that? And does the vastness of of the universe and of this cosmos, does it render a judgment on us? Does it really convey the reality that we are insignificant and irrelevant as as human beings? Is that really true? Is what Carl Sagan says true? That he says we're just insignificant specks on an insignificant planet in an insignificant galaxy tucked away in an insignificant corner of the cosmos. Is that really true? Because I think that's the kind of the first place you go when you start really imagining how big this this cosmos, this multiverse really is. And I think David asked a very similar question when he wrote in Psalm 8. He says this, "When When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. David's pondering this and he's really, he's really thinking about something remarkable. He's asserting something remarkable here. Because he understands unscientifically, but in reality, this world is absolutely huge. This cosmos, God's creation is huge and yet God is mindful of us. That the greatest expression that you, of love that you can give to someone else is your undivided attention. And what David says is, we have God's undivided attention. He's mindful of us. And he goes further to say that he cares for us. That is absolutely astounding when you consider the size and the scope and the complexity of what surrounds us every single day. Now, the enormity of the cosmos, I think, confirms our significance. 
I, I, believe, I believe God's creation confirms just how significant we really are. That even though I'm just a microscopic speck on an insignificant planet, you know, all of that stuff, he knows me. He has regard for me. He cares for me. He thinks of me. He looks past the stars and the galaxies and the cosmos and he thinks of you. And he knows you. He's mindful of you and what you're going through right now. And he cares for you. And what it says, church, is this, that you and I are not the center of the universe. God is, but we are the center of his heart. And like God, his heart is infinite. And he has his heart set on us. That's how much he loves us. And what this means is this, that in the vastness of the cosmos, you are significant. You are loved. God knows you. God cares about you. That's the truth. And nowhere do we see this significance more than in the Christmas season when you begin to comprehend the star maker, the galaxy, the creator, the planet, you know, the planet crafter, the infinite God of the universe left the throne of heaven and entered into the womb of a teenage girl named Mary 2,000 years ago and allowed himself to be born wrapped in swaddling cloths and placed in a cattle trough in a cave. And he did it for you and for me. That's your significance in flesh and blood right there. That's it. That he came to earth, he lived on this earth, he was tempted on this earth, he suffered on this earth, he took your sins and my sins upon himself and died on this earth and on the third day rose conquering death on this earth and one day he will be coming back as a king. Praise be to God. Do you see your significance, church? Do you see it? Do you see how your love, nothing proves the love of God for you more than Christmas. Nothing. And so what I love about this, this story of the Magi is it really illustrates for us just how significant we really are. It really does. I, I, think, I, I think the story of the Magi is really the story of God drawing these guys from the remotest corner of the earth to Bethlehem to see the King of Kings, the creator of the universe, being born in human flesh. And it reveals to us our significance. You see, really what, what this story of the Magi does is it reveals to us the grace of God for us. The grace that he extends to us. That's what Christmas is all about. And I think as you kind of read through the story of the Magi, the, the, the message here is unmistakable. What Matthew is trying to transmit to us is that, more, that, is that specifically grace is for outsiders. Because what we're going to see is the Magi are not insiders. They're not religiously with it. They don't have their act all together. But what you see is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords extending himself, extending grace to these outsiders, inviting them to become insiders. And it's crazy. It is absolutely crazy. What you see specifically is this, that God's grace is for lost people. That's what you see. And praise be to God because lost people are all that there are in this world. And, uh, and so God, 
God loves us and extends his love. And so what I, what I love about this story is I think it teaches us a lot about grace. I, 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 think, it, I think it shows us three pictures of grace. I think, it, I think what we see in this story of the Magi is we see the revelation of God's grace. We see it revealed. And we also see the invitation of God's grace extended to us to receive it. And interestingly enough, in this story of the Magi, there's a warning to continue to pursue grace. And that's what I want us to look at today. So let's, let's jump in and let's look at the first one. Let's look at this, this uh, revelation of God's grace. This is really interesting. Go back and look at chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Let me, just, let me just unpack this for you. Matthew writes this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise man from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. We saw his star. You guys catch that? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. Now, this is, this is really interesting because the picture of grace, the, the revelation of grace that we're seeing here is that God is going to move the stars to empty out hell. God is moving the heavens to empty out hell. That's what he's doing. Am I being a little too stark for you today? I don't, want, I don't mean to be, but that's the truth of this. That God loves lost people and he has deep concern for them. And that's exactly what we see. We see the revelation of grace. Now, let me, let's, let's look at this a couple of different avenues. What in the world is going on with this star? And then, and then secondly, what in the world, who are these magi, right? Who are these wise men, all right? Let, let's take the star, let's take the star from, and, and let's look at that and see what the significance of this really is. Now, there were several astrological developments right around the years leading up to the birth of Jesus. Okay, we know this from history. Um, one astrological development was the appearance of Halley's Comet around 12 BC. All right, so that thing started showing up in the skies. And not only that, but you had this Jupiter-Saturn conjunction, this Jupiter-Saturn strange, uh, strange alignment three different times in 7 BC. Okay, and, uh, and then you had apparently some you had a report of a star exploding around 5 BC, which was visible in Israel. So there's a whole lot of stuff going on in the skies leading up to the birth of Jesus. And people back then would observe these things, kind of like what they do now, and they would observe these things and wonder what in the world is going on. Something's happening. And what's fascinating is this, that it was the common belief in that day that the birth of great rulers and the death of great rulers was marked in the sky. So whenever there was a great ruler that was born or one that died, it would be marked in the sky. Let me give you an example. And I, I, get, I get this illustration from Tim Keller, but he talks about one of, the, one of the greatest flukes in human history was the fact that Caesar or Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC, they're cremating his body and a supernova appears in the sky. An absolute coincidence, just an incredible fluke. They didn't see it that way. They thought, there it is. 
It's this, it's this great ruler dying and it's being marked in the sky. Now, that's absolutely fascinating. That's the mindset you're dealing with here. That's what they thought. They thought anybody, any political activity that's going on in the world today, you're going to see it in the sky, right? Now, we just see it today on the TV, but that's another whole other story. So now, the other interesting thing about this is this, that right around the time of Jesus, there was a very strong belief that a ruler was going to be born in Judea. And this rumor spread all over the Mediterranean. People were on edge about this. And people talked about this, whether you, you were Jewish or not, whether you from the people of Israel or not. And we know this from Josephus, Suetonius, Tacitus, these secular historians that refer to the rumor mill churning about, about a ruler, a great ruler being born in Judea. Now, obviously, that was sourced in Old Testament prophecy because God was giving warning to his people uh, to be expecting the Messiah, and they were aware of that. And so people talked about it. Um, every day. So, so you have this expectation of a great ruler. You've got all this stuff happening in the sky. And you ask the question, what in the world is going on with this star in Matthew 2 that the wise men are following? And here's my answer. I have no idea what's going on with that star. I really don't. Other than God sovereignly used it to guide these wise men from where they were, which we'll talk about in a minute, to where Jesus is in his sovereign love. Because you see, he holds, he holds the constellations in his hand so he can, he can do whatever he wants to do. So, so there's that. The next question is, well, who are these magi? These magi were interesting guys. These, uh, these magi uh, were magicians. They were astrologers. They were interpreters of dreams. They were part of the intellectual elite of the day, if you will. And uh, I, I really hate to do this. I hate to kind of wreck your nativity scene but there were more than three wise men um, there probably 15 to 30 of them okay uh, so I don't I don't want to I hate to do that but uh, that's just the reality the other thing is it never says that they came at the birth of Jesus uh, indications are they came when Jesus was a toddler when he was about two years old right around that age group so I hope I'm not messing up the Christmas story for you, but that's just, that's just the reality of, of what's going on. So, so what these guys would do, 15 to 30 of them, they were part of the intellectual elite of the day. And what they would do is they would combine astrology with astronomy, the study of the stars. They were careful observers of the stars. They would try to make meaning in life from what they were seeing in the stars. And so what they would do, the royal families in the day in Iraq and Iran, where these magicians, these magi were from, uh, would consult them about their hopefully good fortunes in the future. That's how they made their money. But they were considered the intellectual elite of the day. They were very in the know. They were very, um, they were in, in tight knit inside circles, if you will. So um, now, let me give you the reality of these guys. These guys dabbled in the dark arts. These guys would pursue the demonic to get an insight into the future. Uh, the reality about these guys, and I think this is what Matthew wants to point us to, is why he's including this in his gospel and his presentation about Jesus, is he wants us to see that outsiders are being invited on the inside of God's grace. Because the reality of the Magi is this. I can't cut it down any more than this. These guys were pagan idolaters. 
that's what they were. You couldn't get more outside than these magi. And Matthew is trying to send to us the message that none of us are so far from God that we are too far. That's what he wants us to, to know. That's the message that he's communicating. He is opening up the river, the oceans of God's grace to whoever will come. And they're coming. They're coming. These magi tried everything in creation except the creator. They, they looked for God and the gods every place except the word of God. They pursued salvation in every single thing that the world says except the Savior. And they have finally, finally found him. And the message of grace is unmistakable in, the, in Matthew's gospel. Because what he's trying to say to us is this, that no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you did last night, last week, last month, last year, the grace of God is available to you in the person, in the work of Jesus Christ. Where you no longer have to be chained by the guilt and the shame of sin of the past. Church, you can be set free through the grace of Jesus Christ. That is the message that Matthew is sending. That's the portrait he is painting for us. That the Magi were walking illustrations of God's grace. They were outsiders. They were oddballs. They were sinners and they were undeserving. And here they are in the presence of God himself worshiping. And so it's just an amazing story, church, that God chooses them, God leads them, God draws them, God guides them, God woos them to his grace. And they're going all in. And what's even more amazing about this story, when you just consider this, these guys were, I mentioned they were pagan idolaters, they worshiped the stars. So consider this, God's using their idols what they worship to draw them to himself. He's using a star to draw them to himself. He, isn't, isn't God good? You know, I grew up worshiping football. I did. It was an idol in my life for so many years. And what else are you going to worship in South Alabama, right? And God used football to lead me to himself. He used my idol to draw me to himself. Isn't God amazing? When I really should have just been cut off forever. But, that's, but see, that's grace. Now the fascinating thing here too is this, and I, I don't have time to really unpack this, but, but he not only uses the star to guide the wise men, but he uses his word. Because you see, the revelation of God's grace is comes through what we call general revelation, which you, you turn around and you see all of creation. You see the Grand Canyon. You see the Pacific Ocean. You see how beautiful creation is. You see Lucas Oil Stadium and you're just like, oh, you know, that's called general revelation. There must be a God, you know, right? Um, that's general revelation. So God uses that, but that's not sufficient in and of itself. What you need is special revelation. And so the wise men are led to Bethlehem through his word. Because you remember they went to Herod and Herod called the teachers of the law. And the teachers of the law said, it's Bethlehem. That's what the prophets said. Do you see how important the word of God is that leads us to this revelation of God's grace? I think it's absolutely huge. 
And so some people will say God helps those who help themselves. That's not in Scripture. That's not grace. The German poet Goethe said this, whoever strives with all of his power can be saved. That's not the gospel. That's not in his word. I think what we see in the wise man is this, that these guys find the presence of God. They find Jesus. Not because they first sought him, but because God sought them out and wooed them to himself. So that's, that's the revelation of his grace. What about the invitation of grace? Let me show you this. Look at verses 10 and 11. This is the invitation. So, so they figure out that, he, that this king is born in Bethlehem. And so they, they go to Bethlehem and they, when they saw the star, they, they, it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You get the feeling they're excited, right? Because they're not going to use all of those words to describe their joy if they're not excited. They're pretty pumped. And going into the house, it says, they saw the child with, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. So they used to worship the stars, but they're no longer worshiping the stars, they're worshiping Jesus. Do you see the conversion that's taken place? They used to, they used to give themselves to, 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 to worshiping creation. Now they're worshiping the creator. And, and someone invited them into God's grace. I, I probably was Joseph. They're knocking on the door. And Joseph probably answered, being the man of the house, these 30 guys show up, strangers. They look pretty wild and woolly, if you can only imagine what they look like after, after journeying for so long. Uh, and Joseph invites them into the presence of God to experience his grace. Now, if you don't, if you don't know a little bit of background, you, you can kind of miss the significance of this. But, so, so let me just take a minute and explain it. Church, not just anybody could go into the presence of God. Only Jews could go into the presence of God. Because you see, they, they were God's chosen people. Gentiles were God's unchosen people. The Jews were clean. Gentiles were unclean. The Jews were God's beloved. Gentiles were God's not beloved. And before you kind of start getting frustrated with Jewish people, this is what God told the Jewish people. And, and, and so not just anybody could enter into the presence of God. And so, so what we're seeing here are these pagan idolaters from a foreign land entering in seamlessly the presence of God and worshiping Jesus and being recipients of his grace. It's absolutely astounding what is going on here. Astounding. And so Jesus coming really shows us the invitation of grace, that grace is available for everyone. It's available for the outcast. It's, it's available for, you know, the outsider. It's, it's, it's available for those who fall short, who those who miss the mark, who, do, who, you know, those that don't measure up, those that are not good enough. All of us. That's who the grace of God is for. And it's amazing what's happening here. They were invited right into the presence of God. I, um, there's a great Dr. Seuss story. You guys know the story of the Sneetches? You guys remember then? Uh, the Sneetches were these tall yellow creatures that lived on beaches. And, uh, and uh, in this story, the, the, the Sneetches were divided up into two groups, two very distinct groups. 
And one group, this was the insider elite group, if you, if you catch my drift on that, they had these green stars right on their bellies. And they were elite. And then the other group of Sneetches were the ones who didn't have the green stars. They are not so elite. In fact, uh, you know, the, the green stars would just build these exclusive campfires and they would sing. But the outsiders, the losers, the ones without the green stars were not welcome on the inside around the campfires. Well, finally, one day, things began to change when Sylvester McMonkey McBean shows up with this strange contraption that uh, can put a green star on your belly for a small fee. And the uh, have-nots decided, we want that. So they line up for miles to get this green star written right on their belly because, I mean, everybody wants to be on the inside, right? Can I get an amen to that? Yeah. So they line up, and this ticks off the current insiders because they don't want the outsiders in with them. They want, they want separation. They want division. They want condemnation, right? That's what they want. So, so naturally, uh, McBean has a solution to that. He's got a contraption that not only puts the star on, but can take the star off. So now the ones with the star want their star off because they want to be separated. They want to feel superior. They want to feel better. And so this goes back and forth and it escalates until Dr. Seuss finally says this, neither the plane nor the star bellies knew whether this one was that one or that one was this one or which one was what one or what one was who. You couldn't tell anymore. And I thought, man, that is, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What the coming of Jesus does is it eliminates all of this unnecessary superficial distinctions that we lay on each other every single day. And in our world and in our minds, it's us and them, whoever them is. But with God, it's just us and him. And from God's perspective, we're all sneetches without stars because we're all outsiders, because we've sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We've, we've turned our back on his ways and his law and his word. We've turned our back on his love. We made the choice to be separated from him. And we could never pay enough to have our sins paid for. But someone paid our penalty for us. The star maker and the planet creator did it for us on a cross 2,000 years ago. In fact, Ephesians 2 says it like this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Now the amazing thing, I, I, what I love about the story of the Magi is this, it's, it's just very simple. And this is so incredible. You're, it's, you, many of you are going to miss what I'm about to say. But it's this, there are no conditions that define you as unworthy, disqualified, or excluded. None. There are no conditions that define you as unworthy, disqualified, or excluded. There's some of you here today, you, there's been a catastrophic, in your mind, a catastrophic failure in your life at some point in the past. And you're allowing that failure to define you right now. You carry it with you like a ball and chain. Or maybe there's just some persistent habitual sin that you just can't seem to overcome and you're allowing that to define you every single day. 
Or you might have experienced some deep personal rejection from someone that you loved. And you carry that around with you like a ball and chain. Or you might feel like, you know, your addiction is what defines you. Your addiction to something, some substance, some whatever in the, you know, that you're battling in the present. You're tempted to think that's what defines you and your worth as a person. See, the gospel says this, you don't let sins and failures define you. The love of God defines you. The grace of Jesus Christ is what defines you. And so as we come to him in repentance, as we come to him in faith, as we come to him for salvation, which is saving from sin, his grace and his love begins to define us. And when you walk in that identity, church, man, it changes you. And I have to think that those magi, those, those astrologers and dream interpreters walked in uh, into the presence of Jesus defined one way and they walked out defined in a completely different way, defined by the grace of God. And you could be that too, by grace through faith. Before we kind of close, let me just say this. I just wonder if there's someone in your life who needs to hear the invitation to grace. If there's someone in your life that needs to be invited into the presence of Jesus, just like probably Joseph invited these guys in, maybe you need to do that. I just know there are a lot of people that are thirsty today. I do know that. They're just looking somewhere where they can drink from the water of eternal life. Here's the last one. I think there's a warning here to keep pursuing grace. I do. I, I, think, there, I think there's a clear warning in here. I wish I could tease it out and develop it a little bit more, but I, but I will say this. I, I, think it's, I, I think it's interesting that Herod, Herod, we're not going to look at it, but Herod summons the, the teachers of the Old Testament, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, to give him insight into when Jesus is going to be born and where Jesus is going to be born. And what's interesting to me is the Magi and the wise men travel hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles pursuing the Savior, but these guys are slumbering in the middle of the night. They're so apathetic and they're so complacent in their faith they don't really care where the Messiah is born. They're just here to do a job to tell Herod what the scriptures say. And they're not, they're not even pursuing him. You know what that tells me? They have a knowledge of the word, but their reaction to, to it is, is one of complacency, apathy. They hear the message of grace, but they don't drink it in. They hear the gift of salvation, but they don't receive it. What is that? It's apathy. Because the same scribes and the same teachers of the law, the same religious establishment, if you will, missed the grace of God that night. And I just hope and pray that there's no one in this room here today saying, you know what, last year, last decade, when I was a kid, I prayed a prayer in a Sunday school room and I'm good, I'm just coasting. Or I go to church every single week. God knows I'm good enough. I'm, I'm, I'm great. I'm good where I'm at. I'm a good person. And you just got your spiritual life on complacent cruise control. That's what you have. I think there's a warning here that if you do that, church, you can miss the very grace that God is extending. You can miss the wonder of what Christmas really 
is all about. I was reading something interesting. Consumer Reports let out this interesting statistic. You know, one out of five gift cards that are given never get used. One out of five never get used. Now, if you give me a gift card, I will use it, I promise. So, uh, especially if it's to a restaurant. But, but what's interesting is the Consumer Reports reported that that represented in one year $927 million that never got used as a gift. I think the temptation for you and for me is this, that we not use the grace, the gift. We not receive the gift that God has given to us, that gift of grace. See, when you look up at the stars tonight, hopefully it's probably not going to be a clear night tonight, but when you see the stars, hopefully the enormity of it will remind you of the enormity of God's gift of grace to you and you'll receive it. Let's pray together. I I, I want to ask you to just with your eyes closed and your, your head and your hearts bowed. I, I think that there could be at least two types of people here. Those that have never received Christ as the Savior, they've never bowed down to worship Him. They've never yielded to Him. They've never received the gift of grace. And I just, I just want to encourage you. I want to challenge you today to, to move in faith, to believe the message of the gospel that God loves you, that God gave his son to die for you and his grace is available to you. I dare you to move and receive that gift. And then the other type would be that, yeah, you've received that grace, but you've been coasting. You've just kind of been on cruise control. You've been pursuing other things. You're, you're apathetic towards the, to the grace of God. And I want to challenge you to take a step today and confess that and repent of that and ask God to open your eyes, your spiritual eyes to the wonder of his love and grace. Let's pray together. God, I, I know that you know every single person here in this room. You know all of us. You, you know where we are and you love us. And so, God, I ask that you would work in this place. I ask that you would would draw us to yourself, that you would woo us to your son. And, God, that we would kneel before him in worship, in praise, in adoration, and in wonder that in the size of this universe, in the glory of your creation, you are mindful of us. You care for us. God, we are blown away. And I ask that today you would bring salvation to those who've never had it before. And I pray that you would bring life back to those that have been apathetic towards it. God, would you work in this place? We thank you and all of God's people said, amen and amen. Let's stand together as we worship.